Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you tools to develop a balanced approach for health. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. And Kyle, to be honest, when this study first came out that we're going to be talking about today, I think my heart skipped a beat. And I think my blood pressure went up. <laughs> you guessed it. We're talking about testosterone. So a yeah, landmark trial in testosterone therapy, the Traverse study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So First of all, we want to give major props to the authors, um, Linkoff and others who were involved in putting this study together and publishing the results. Yeah, and uh, true props because I don't know if it's uh, big balls or small balls, but they studied a true very high risk population with either known coronary artery disease or uh, truly very high risk of coronary artery disease. A study like this hadn't really been done at the scale that they did it. I know that Cleveland Clinic was one of the places that uh, initiated and completed this trial, but it was a nice multi-center trial with more than 5,000 participants. Yeah, a really good number of patients. And a lot of people have raised the question now um, whether this is going to lift the warning label that's on testosterone for specifically cardiovascular events. Mm -hmm. uh, there still is a label there, an additional warning label for uh, venous thromboembolism, you know, VTE events. So nope. probably not going to lift that one. That one we think will remain in place. Um, but the other one is you know, perhaps a bit in question now. And I think the short version is this is a largely positive trial for testosterone and um, gives providers good information to discuss with patients who are in really any risk category, but specifically in a high risk category. So let's run through what these patients look like. So the average age, these were older men, um, mm -hmm. just about ready to retire. Average age was about 63. Yeah. So uh, when you retire, you certainly don't want to have a heart attack or a stroke. We all know too many stories of people that do. And also when you retire, you have more time. Um, testosterone, as we talk about, is something that is a tool to give you a balanced approach to your health span. Um, and yes, that's the tagline of the podcast. But um, Presumably, these individuals, whether they were enrolled in the testosterone group or the placebo group, they were trying to improve their lifestyle. I think interesting, we'll, interestingly, we'll see how the testosterone levels, even in the placebo group, slightly increased over time. But um, these individuals had lots of comorbidities, prediabetes, diabetes, high blood pressure, history of dyslipidemia, history of cardiovascular disease, coronary artery disease as well. Yeah, and I think the average BMI, uh, and I may have underestimated this actually, but it was right at 35. So these were people who were substantially obese. They weren't actually borderline obese. So um, obesity in you know, basically the majority, the average person in the study was obese. Um, 90 plus percent with high blood pressure, I think similar percent with elevated lipids. Mm -hmm. um, but a couple things to note is the medications that the patients were on, you know, about 84% were on some form of lipid-lowering therapy. Um, we don't know the breakdown of whether this was a PCSK9 inhibitor or a statin, what exactly they were on. And then uh, a good portion of them were on aspirin as well, about 60% mm -hmm. on an aspirin. I'm assuming most of these were like a, a baby aspirin, so like a 81 milligram dose that's commonly used in people who have known coronary mm -hmm. artery disease or have had cardiac intervention because it still is a tool that is used in, in primary prevention. You do have yep. to think about the bleeding risks there. Of note, aspirin is an antiplatelet, as we'll talk about later, how it interferes with thromboxane and the 
input that androgens like testosterone have on that. It is not a blood thinner as far as an anticoagulant, which will be pertinent when we talk about the risk of pulmonary embolism. Um, another interesting thing is over 15% of both groups had chronic kidney disease. You think of cardiorenal syndrome, you think about uh, renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system dysregulation, blood pressure both in the systemic vasculature and the pulmonary vasculature, and that is one of the um, things that you look at for risk of AFib, um, which will also be pertinent later. Yeah, for sure. So you have all these things that are coming together. This is like a you know a perfect storm for someone to rapidly accumulate plaque and have a vascular event, a very high risk population. So if we go down and look at you know what sort of testosterone levels were they achieving? Uh, the placebo group maintained their basal testosterone between two hundred and two fifty, with a slight trend up over four years. Yeah. Interestingly, hard, not really statistically significant, but it's enough to say over that period of time, four years. It did trend up. Yep. And then the trough level, it's important to note with this graphic that these were the, presumably the labs that were drawn 24 hours after the testosterone gel dose. So this was transdermal. And those were somewhere between you know, 300 and 400 is basically what they were achieving as a trough. So during the day, these numbers are going to be substantially higher, um, mm -hmm. but they had a, you know, a therapeutic trough. So they weren't you know, running 1,200 around the clock. Yeah, and before the commenters go down below and say uh, 500 or 400 is not an optimal testosterone level, keep in mind that if you are endogenously producing testosterone, it's also normal to have a trough in the evening and at night. And it does give you a bit of a break from the steady state that injectable testosterone does. Um, but that being said, uh, not everybody has to have a total testosterone over 1,000. In fact, they really shouldn't uh, especially if they're in a high risk group, I think that these individuals were appropriately dosed. Yeah, it, it would seem so. And when we go into the supplemental data, I think they did a good job of managing the you know, side effects of testosterone. One of the questions that people always ask about is, you know, red blood cell count and blood viscosity, and these patients were screened for that. Um, they were actually even screened for sleep apnea. So that, that doesn't mean that they necessarily had a sleep study performed, but they were probably asked, you know, do you snore? Has anyone ever told you stop breathing, filling out uh, yep. Epworth sleepiness scale, some yep. of those sorts of things. Um, but when it came down to the like, you know, composite endpoint of, you know, major adverse cardiovascular events or MACE, if you have all these risk factors on testosterone or off testosterone, it looks like it's about a 7% chance of this happening mm -hmm. over a four-year time period. Yeah. So that sounds relatively high, but in this specific patient population, it is expected. Um, but of note, there is no significant difference. So when it comes to removing the label specifically for ASCBD events, heart attacks and strokes, I think that's reasonable. And this could be the study that pushes that over the edge. Yeah. And important to note that these patients, the LDL level was around 80. They were also on antiplatelet therapy. So they're it's not like they just put them on testosterone with no other medical interventions. They're on the standard of care for these chronic conditions that they had. Shouldn't they stop their toxic statins when they start testosterone? I yeah. suppose we would have sure. seen a, I, I actually think we've seen a very different outcome if everyone quit their statins when they started we with testosterone. Would have. I wish we could have seen, seen that. Um, but yeah, this was conducted largely at academic centers like Cleveland Clinic that are practicing evidence-based medicine, tracking mm -hmm. ApoBs and things like that to prevent ASCBD progression. And uh, of note, people know that I call testosterone and androgens in general inverse statins because they 
they activate or induce the same enzyme that statins inhibit, which is inactivate. So they do the opposite thing. So I think it is uh, particularly reasonable that they continue that therapy. Yeah. And one of the unfortunate things is we weren't able to see how the cholesterol levels changed in response to the therapy. It just wasn't published in the supplementary data. Yep. Uh, we did see blood pressure changes. That was something that was logged at each of these appointments. But presumably these patients were getting their you know, lipid checks and other blood, ma- blood markers, A1Cs and things like that um, throughout the visits as well. It just wasn't published for us to review. Um, but this first graph here, the one that we've been talking about that shows uh, the MACE endpoint, also shows us our first um, signal of some potential harm associated with the testosterone. Uh, and that relates to venous thromboembolic events and then uh, pulmonary embolism. The hazard ratios for those uh, for VTE, 1.46. And then the hazard ratio for pulmonary embolism, it's not calculated there, but it would be two. That, that's fairly easy. Yep. Uh, exactly double the events in the testosterone arm. No huge difference in DVT, which is blood clots in the leg. Pulmonary embolism is blood clot in the lung. Um, Yeah, 12 versus 24, that's twice as many. Should I immediately take all of my patients off testosterone as I'm I'm your TRT clinic doc? Should I take all of them off? That's twice as many. No, but it's a discussion to have when we talk about risks and benefits. And Mm -hmm. when you're talking about any medication, if the risks and the benefits, you know, make sense for that particular patient based on their values, risk tolerance, and the you know, improvement in quality of life. Because that's really the, um, the the takeaway from this study. Testosterone is largely a you know, quality of life medication. In most cases, it's prescribed. Um, there can be cases made for things like bone mineral density, sarcopenia, yep. um, or someone who you know, very early on, or they have a hypogonadism that's secondary to another cause, perhaps a testicular cancer, mm-hmm. then they truly do need a replacement therapy for yep. long-term health issues that could develop. But most of the testosterone being prescribed now is a you know quality of life drug, just being honest. Yeah. And this is another reason why if you look in a vacuum at each specialist, if you look at the specialist that's only looking at, uh, for example, testosterone's effect on the genitourinary system, like urologist, then they might not see all the benefits across other organ systems. A true, you can't be a hormone specialist without being well-versed in all organ systems. You could say the same for a psychiatrist. A lot of psychiatrists are um, familiar with the benefits that testosterone has on many psychiatric conditions, even depression. And um, a lot of uh, specialists in many different locations are either hyper-aware of the risks, like cardiologists, or hyper aware of the benefits like uh, hormone optimization clinics, I suppose. So just finding that balance and trying to address everything possible is important. It does take time. It's probably not one five minute consult per year. This is probably longitudinal care over time, um, getting to know your doctor or your nurse practitioner, just like they're your friend, um, asking questions directly to them rather than to someone who is not a physician or nurse practitioner. And yes, it requires talking about things like platelets and maybe even thromboxane, um, mechanism of action of how AFib happens, how clots happen. Um, It is reassuring how many patients and also friends have messaged both of us since this study came out, because a lot of them think um, they they think 
Do, did we account for risk of blood clot in the lung? Did we account for risk of AFib? Yes, um, that's why we discussed this. That's why I take a low dose Eliquis when I fly an airplane for a long period of time, et cetera. Yeah, it's something that we like to really take a comprehensive look at because it, it seems like uh, patients either get a like, absolutely yes, you need this or a like, absolutely no, you should never take this, it's poison. And you know, having a more long form discussion of those benefits and risks is really valuable. And I think to your point about um, taking every single one of your patients off of you know, testosterone, let's say, um, this is a good, actually the numbers work out quite well here to do a relative risk and absolute risk analysis. So if you are on testosterone, you have a 100% increased risk of developing a pulmonary embolism. If you are on testosterone and you're in this patient cohort, your absolute risk of developing a pulmonary embolism is about 1%. Yep. So the numbers work out very nicely there. And you see this a lot in headlines. So X medication or making X lifestyle change reduces risk or increases risk by X percent. And you need to look and see is that absolute risk or relative risk. Yeah. And for those that uh, like uh, just a quick note on absolute versus relative risk, the relative risk is the percentage change. So the less likely an event will happen, the lower the absolute risk will be. So if the event only has a 1% chance of happening, or in the case of the placebo group in the study for pulmonary embolism, a um, half of a percent chance of happening, then um, it is not, uh, it's, I wouldn't say it's not as concerning, but it is less likely to happen to each patient. Yeah. And you, you can't possibly talk about every adverse event that could potentially happen with any medication, but you do like think, Hey, what are the high risk things? You have a really good history on the patient, even family history. So even because we'll talk about with, you know, factor five, even if someone doesn't carry a mutation for factor five, but they have family members who at young ages had, you know, family members that have factor five or family yep. members that have had like surprising blood clots, like someone sub 40 who got a clot after going on an international flight. That's a bit of an unusual circumstance so that that person still carries some unknown risk. Mm -hmm. I guess this is a good point to chat about other risks like AFib and um, non-fatal arrhythmias. So we mentioned the uh, high incidence of chronic kidney disease as is expected in a true high-risk population, over 15% in both groups, high incidence of hypertension. I don't remember the percentage, but a lot of people were- Over 90%. Over 90%. And presumably all those individuals were also uh, adherent to a regimen of whatever blood pressure medication would be necessary but we do not know which blood pressure medications. What we do know is that when you start an androgen, it's going to dysregulate something called the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, RAAS. And um, there are specific blood pressure medicines that work better for this and some that do not work as well. And it's not always as simple as just picking an ACE or an ARB, but uh, it would be interesting to see if as blood pressure became less well-regulated, it did increase a couple points systolic and I believe one point diastolic um, treatment group versus placebo group. If more of these patients happened to be started on ACEs and ARBs, given how many of them were diabetic or had kidney disease, it's very likely that many of them were on an ACE or an ARB or even something like Carindia or um, another uh, aldosterone antagonist. 
Yeah, it's interesting. And that was a piece of the data that was in the supplemental information. So blood pressure was treated not to below 120 over 80, but these patients were treated to the mid 130s over 77, something like that. So I think 133-ish was the, the mean systolic pressure. But seeing a subgroup analysis, like you said, of I would assume the higher someone's blood pressure is because mm -hmm. you're going to have people that were at a 150 systolic, people that were at a 110 nope. systolic as outliers. I would suspect you see more of those, you know, arrhythmias, uh, people that are at a higher blood pressure, yep. putting more strain on the uh, right atrium in particular. Yep. The right atrium and um, the veins that, uh, the vasculature that originates or goes to the right atrium, that's where AFib tends to develop. If you get an ablation, it's usually at kind of the very top of the right atrium. And uh, if you have uh, buildup of pressure, then you're going to basically have electrical shorts. And that's where many arrhythmias, including AFib, come from. Um, it would have also, like one other factor here is, this is the systemic blood pressure. So your body has two different plumbing systems. It has the systemic that goes basically to the entire body except the lungs and then the pulmonary vasculature, which just goes to the lungs and the right side of the heart pumps the blood to the lungs and the, lung, the blood comes back from the lungs to the left side of the heart. Um, so yes, for AFib, the systemic blood pressure will matter more, but um, it is possible to uh, have a higher relative blood pressure in one system. And that's likely something that you should take into account, especially for starting TRT. Are you on a blood pressure medicine where it's just not the optimal choice for, um, and it's not just your heart health in isolation, it's your uh, cardiorenal syndrome. So it's your kidneys plus your heart, or it's hepatorenal syndrome, your liver plus your heart. Everything taken into account together, what's the benefit and the detriment of the blood pressure med? And even if you're just on a, an angiotensin receptor blocker, which angiotensin receptor blocker? Maybe you're on telmosartan before, but you need something slightly stronger. Maybe azelsartan is a better choice after. So there's a lot of nuance to that. Yeah. So the arrhythmias and you know, speaking of the, the RAS system, the incidence of acute kidney injury was statistically significant and was higher in the TRT group. So I think that points to the dysregulation of that system. I don't think people on TRT were more dehydrated. I, I don't think that's what was causing the, yeah. the kidney injuries there. But if they are increasing blood pressure and having that dysregulation, that's probably why you're seeing that signal there. And that was a 50% uh, increased relative risk. And the absolute risk there was about, what would that be? Between 2 and 3% in the TRT group, mm -hmm. uh, between 1% and 2% in the placebo group. Mm -hmm. Another takeaway that I took is the incidence of diabetes. Um, I don't believe they said how many were pre-diabetic, perhaps they did, but they tracked the incidence of diabetes, number of patients, and it, it's about a difference of 1%. Um, yes, less people in the TRT group developed diabetes. Yeah, and it's not statistically significant, but it's a trend towards statistical significance, and it fits with what we know about the underlying mechanisms and how testosterone benefits skeletal muscle mass and benefits glucose uptake, insulin sensitivity. So I'm not surprised to see a slight edge in the TRT group there, but it's not um, it's nothing magical that's going to reverse someone's diabetes on its own. Yeah, it's a good example of even in a study of 5,000 people, an effect does not have statistical significance, but it is a clinically significant point to take into account 
a, a probably a pretty mild point, but if you're an individual that's right on the edge of diabetes, using tools, including other things, and not just DRT, but especially lifestyle to prevent getting the initial diagnosis of diabetes, that's going to be one of the things that is the best intervention for your health span that you can do. All right, so continuing down, here's that blood pressure graph, and we'll have this up on the screen for folks. So the baseline blood pressure for the testosterone group went up exactly one millimeter of mercury systolic, 132.8 to 133.8. Um, the placebo group actually had a half point decrease in their systolic blood pressure. Mm -hmm. So between one and two point increase for testosterone in general. So it's a fairly small increase in the blood pressure, but perhaps you did have some outliers there that were skewing that up. And maybe those are the people that had mm -hmm. the incidence of AFib, people that had more venous thrombosis because you're causing more damage, more strain on the vascular system. Mm -hmm. We just don't have that data. But why would we care about the red blood cell count? Because don't yeah. people at altitude have high red blood cell counts? Um, this is another one that is a, a very debated topic. And the, yep. the literature is not overwhelmingly thorough here, but we do have a couple of good studies that have looked at this and then the downstream risk. Yeah, the thousand foot view on that, pun intended, the, fi <laughs> the 5,000 foot view on that, pun intended, is that at altitude, a lot of times you have a loss in plasma volume as well as blood volume at times as well. So it's a relative increase. Whereas um, with testosterone replacement, you often get an increase in blood volume but an increase in blood volume that is skewed towards an increase in hematocrit, which is the percentage of your blood that is taken up by red blood cells. So in this study, there was about 6,000 men. Uh, they received testosterone. They developed polycythemia. They matched them with another 6,000, 5,842 to be exact. Um, and they matched them with those individuals that did not develop polycythemia. And yes, indeed, the men with polycythemia had a higher risk of MACE slash VTE. So I guess it's kind of like a composite primary outcome. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the incidence was 301 people, which is 5%, versus 226, which was 3.87%. Um, so that's a relatively small difference, but that's a large enough study to where its p-value was extremely small and its odds ratio is 1.13 to 1.61. So definitely something that's statistically significant and clinically significant. Yeah, so about a 35% you know, relative increase in the risk there for people that are you know, getting this elevated red blood cell count. Now, we don't know how many of those people had sleep apnea that was contributing or other factors, smokers perhaps, but nope. um, it wasn't 100% of the patients that had some like Thing we can point to and say, aha, the testosterone did not do this. Mm -hmm. It's well known that testosterone does increase in most forms, increases the red blood cell count. And the term polycythemia is um, not my favorite. I, I prefer like secondary erythrocytosis. It refers to the erythrocytes, the red blood cells specifically. Yep. Polycythemia, if I, if I tell a patient, oh, you've got polycythemia from your testosterone, they're going to go online and WebMD is going to tell them they have blood cancer, something yeah. like that. They're like, oh my gosh, testosterone gave me blood cancer. So we prefer you know, secondary erythrocytosis, even though technically polycythemia is correct terminology. It just you know, confuses people. And no, you, and 
No, it's not a terrible idea to do phlebotomy when your doctor or nurse practitioner tells you to, but doing phlebotomy is not going to fix everything. In fact, it is extremely common for patients to come to us that have both erythrocytosis, very high red blood cells, hemoglobin, hematocrit, and they are also iron deficient because they have donated blood so often. And if you donate blood, uh, you can only do it so often before you get iron deficient. And when you're not donating blood, then you're going to have that same process return. And also the process that's behind it, which is increased erythropoietin and also that RAS dysregulation we mentioned earlier. Um, you want to address the root cause of that. Yeah, maybe this is a good point to kind of skip ahead to some of those mechanisms that contribute to the increase in the red blood cell count. So um, this actually has the potential, I mean, there's not a exact answer here, but the potential mm -hmm. to be mediated by both testosterone, or but all three actually, estrogen. testosterone, estradiol, and DHT can all play some role in testosterone production. So, you know, the graphic here and the big two points that I see discussed a lot are the, you know, increase in EPO that happens, EPO initially. Um, so you get more red blood cell production initially. Uh, you also have a decrease in a, a protein called hepcidin. In theory, this should be offset a little bit by estradiol. Now, estradiol would kind of do the opposite and increase the hepcidin, but it seems like the testosterone um, overpowers the estradiol in terms of just regulating this protein. So then you get um, basically iron that gets on a, a high-speed conveyor belt into and funneled into red blood cell production. So mm -hmm. your iron is getting shuttled into you know, erythropoiesis. Um, you can be iron deficient. Your body's just going to take most of the iron you're absorbing and direct that resource towards red blood cell production. So that's sort of the pattern where you get these people in limbo, um, where they've over-phlebotomized, energy levels are terrible, and they've got high red blood cell count, and they think, oh, well, I must just feel this way because my blood's thick because I have a high red blood cell count. Yeah, extremely common to see. Uh, can't you just give those individuals injectable estradiol? That's going to stimulate hepcidin, which is going to help with iron uptake, right? <laughs> that sounds like you've solved the problem. Uh, estradiol also binds the estradiol alpha receptor, of course, which particularly in the liver directly induces the synthesis and release of uh, platelets, but also leads to erythrocytosis as well. So estradiol can also do that. And then we mentioned DHT. Um, we, we always joke about that DHT receptor. Maybe there's a DHT receptor, but there's probably not. Uh, as far as we know, there's just an androgen receptor. DHT just tends to bind it very strongly, especially in some tissues, um, likely the bone marrow. Yeah. And I think this is largely from either in vitro or preclinical data where the, the DHT seems to be perhaps a slightly more potent driver of stimulating the bone marrow to produce those red blood cells. Mm -hmm. So we have lots of red blood cells. We obviously don't want a blood clot in our lung or our leg for that matter, or our heart. Um, but uh, a lot of people know, know platelets as the sticky things that stick red blood cells together and cause a clot. And they're not entirely wrong. There's a lot of other inputs with that. And um, we'll chat about that at some point as well. Um, one other thing we could mention is uh, hematocrit changes with different uh, forms of TRT delivery. Yeah. So you'll actually see articles that say all forms of testosterone are associated with an increase in hematocrit. But if you look very closely, a rarely used, um, extraordinarily expensive and um, 
not particularly well liked, at least in you know, our experience prescribing this to patients, is a, a nasal testosterone gel that does not seem to increase hematocrit, at least beyond that um, 50% threshold, sometimes 54% is used. Mm -hmm. So this is a graph comparing the testosterone nasal gel to testosterone cypionate. And I, I can't help but think that they designed this study to get a slightly higher incidence of hematocrit in the testosterone cypionate group. Yeah. The accepted dose of you know, TRT injections is like an average of 100 milligrams per week. And the testosterone cypionate arm of this study was between 100 and 200 milligrams per week, which is probably more realistic for what the average individual out there at a TRT clinic is taking. Yep. Plenty of people do just fine at quite well on 100 milligrams per week. Mm -hmm. um, but this is a graph anyway, and um, it was actually very small. You know, 30 of the patients in the testo group, all 30 of them remained below 50% hematocrit, which has you know, very small, very minimal changes there. Yeah. So for the individual at risk of erythrocytosis, the testo looks pretty good. It's just the delivery mechanism and how people like it. Yeah, and then here's another uh, graph with very wide uh, confidence intervals uh, for the oral testosterone and decanoate, but basically shows you your hematocrit increases with different types of testosterone. Uh, seems to favor uh, a patch and an extremely long-acting like intramuscular testosterone and decanoate compared to uh, an intermediate, um, a gel, um, or the oral testosterone and decanoate. And this is a you know an older study and. Uh, I think the newer forms of testosterone and decanoate are yep. much better. Well, actually, there's another graph we'll talk about the relative risk ratios there that are different from the 70s and 80s compared to the 2000s and beyond. But I, I thought this was interesting to look at. Like, okay, if mm -hmm. you're trying to figure out okay, what's going on with this patient, they keep having these elevated red blood cell counts, um, perhaps switching them to another type of testosterone could ameliorate that risk and then they're no longer going to be iron deficient and even if their testosterone level is lower they're going to feel better not being mm -hmm. iron deficient you mean we don't need to start a pharmaceutical cascade with telmosartan nabivalol and acetazolamide because arbs and aces do lower hematocrit i specifically ask myself a lot is this going to start a pharmaceutical cascade when i'm thinking about okay, there's a side effect caused by something. Do we want to push back against that side effect or not overthink it, go back to the drawing board and figure out a better way? Because mm -hmm. generally the less ingredients you have in the mix, the less side effects and the better the outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of side effects and outcomes, uh, on our Instagram post that we co-posted a few days ago, we got several questions about DHT. Somewhere in there, I typed up... Um, one of the previous posts that you had made regarding uh, DHT, 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, and I believe ventricular hypertrophy or just general cardiac hypertrophy. And uh, we have a few studies here that we can go over, but people seem to be very surprised by the fact that more DHT is not always better because again, you really want to hit that DHT receptor that doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. So th these are some interesting papers, and this is far from like concrete data that I can point to and say, this person on TRT with a slightly higher DHT is going to have X more percent of hypertrophy, but it's a signal in that direction and, and certainly warrants some caution when you have people uh, that are running uh, an extraordinarily high DHT level. Mm -hmm. um, so 
In this one, serum DHT levels correlated positively with the degree of hypertrophy, fibrosis, and dysfunction from cardiac MRI. And this was in female and male patients um, with aortic valve stenosis. So this is a condition of yep. cardiac pressure overload. So you have any type of pressure overload. This could be hypertension. Theoretically, this is some mechanistic extrapolation here. So uh, before people say, well, James said that hypertension and DHT cause cardiac enlargement, don't have any proof of that. Um, but when you have a condition that's putting more stress on the heart, then there is some good mechanistic data here to support DHT, yep. makes that process happen um, to a much greater degree. In addition to that, um, another study looked at 5-alpha reductase inhibitors in diseased hearts. I think this might have been one of the ones that we posted a complete Instagram post about before. And it looks at uh, both patients and mice, I believe, so human and rodent data, with hypertrophic heart disease. So I don't know if this specified if it was left ventricle hypertrophy or right ventricle hypertrophy, but um, the level of DHT was observed as well. And um, when you treat at least rodents with pre-existing cardiac hypertrophy with 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, then um, they will have less cardiac hypertrophy. They have yeah. a, a benefit called remodeling. Yeah, positive remodeling as opposed to um, pathologic remodeling. And mm -hmm. it's interesting you see this in both males and females. So even in female cardiac tissue that, you know, you say you have a female with LVH, more than likely they're going to have a upregulation of 5-alpha reductase that is sort of a it's almost like a positive feedback loop on making that disease progression worse. Yeah, And we know that females tend to actually um, fare better in cases of um, like heart failure, um, left ventricular hypertrophy, hypertension. They seem to um, suffer the consequences of those less than the male counterpart. And this is in humans. Mm -hmm. We briefly mentioned nasal testosterone and some of its benefits. And... Um, as we mentioned previously, one of the main reasons to go on TRT is to prolong the quality of life, but maybe a, a way that sounds uh, more acceptable is to prolong your health span. So it's easy to say, well, quality of life doesn't matter. You just want to live as long as you want to live. But if you've participated in end of life care or had a loved one with neurodegenerative disease or debility of age, then it seems quite reasonable to target a health span goal or a centenarian decathlon of your choosing or whatnot. But uh, this one looked at nasal testosterone, and it looks quite good for quality of life. Yeah, and this was actually, uh, I pulled this one because there was a comparison to Clomid. And people were asking about, well, what about Clomid for you know, TRT? And we didn't know yep. all the data there, but there's some fairly robust data with SERMs in general that point to an increased risk of VTE consistently. Yep. And this, you know, Clomid is commonly prescribed off-label to treat hypogonadism or to improve fertility because if someone comes to you and they've got low T and they say, hey, we're planning for a baby in the next year, it probably shouldn't put that person on a long form of injectable testosterone. Yep. The nasal gel testosterone has some interesting data. It looks like in this case, fertility was preserved and their libido was actually better on nasal testosterone gel than on the Clomid. And there's mm -hmm. papers on both sides of this with Clomid and improvement in sexual function. Mm -hmm. There's one paper I'm aware of that shows specifically a decline in libido from starting Clomid in a hypogonadal male. So I, I shy away from that. I 
don't tend to start people on Clomid. Um, there are specific cases for its use. Just like any medication, there's always a time and a place for it. If your clinic can make a lot of money prescribing it. <laughs> <laughs> but the, and we'll have a full podcast. We always get lots of questions about Clomid. Literally today, I've gotten multiple questions. Should I just take Clomid? Mm. And we'll have a podcast on any selective estrogen receptor modifier. But um, being a strong agonist and a strong antagonist in uh, every tissue in the body has a lot of risks that come with it. Usually very similar risks to TRT and much less benefit other than preserving fertility acutely. So sometimes preserving fertility acutely or using it as a fertility med, the, that is a huge benefit being able to conceive a child when you like to, kind of similar to contraceptives, um, that it outweighs almost all of the risks, which are mostly long-term, but that's how you look at it um, as a basically almost always a slightly worse option than TRT unless you're acutely desiring fertility. I think that's a great take. And now let's touch base on thromboxane A2. So this is something that we hinted towards at the beginning. And this is something that's kind of been on uh, my radar because you talk about you know, testosterone and there's this association with VTE, which seems to be reinforced by this study. And when you look at, okay, well, what would contribute to thrombosis? What would contribute to increased blood viscosity? The sort of uh, boogeyman of testosterone, if you will. Yeah. Uh, thromboxane A2 comes up because um, platelets contain either more or less thromboxane A2, depending on if you were male or female, and depending on um, testosterone levels. Now, perhaps not endogenous testosterone levels, mm. but when they are manipulated to extremes. So yep. you take a healthy male volunteer and you give them a testosterone shot, their platelets then are going to contain more thromboxane A2. If you take a, an older individual, in this case with prostate cancer, and you um, castrate them. The, because of the prostate cancer. Yes, specifically. <laughs> Thank you for that clarification. <laughs> um, and their platelet levels or their platelet levels of thromboxane A2 are going to go down. So mm -hmm. why is this important? Because thromboxane A2 is basically, um, I guess we could call it the amygdala of the platelet, right? So yeah. how likely is your platelet to respond to a stimulus to create a thrombus? Mm -hmm. The higher the levels of TXA2, the more likely that platelet is to be involved in clot formation yep. in simple it, terms. It makes them stickier. So both even endogenous testosterone makes your platelet stickier. Um, exogenous testosterone definitely makes your platelet stickier. I always love these healthy male volunteers. There's no shortage of healthy male volunteers to get a shot of testosterone. Probably not too many healthy male volunteers volunteering to be castrated unless they have prostate cancer or bilateral testicular cancer, but um, aspirin does work on that system. Yeah, so it's a, a good way to push back uh, against that. And I, I suspect we would have seen a much higher rate of VTE if those patients, if 60% of them hadn't been on aspirin. If you had 0% of people on aspirin, I think your event rates would have been substantially yep. higher. Those That darn aspirin and those darn statins decreasing uh, incidence of heart attack and stroke. Yeah, so this was a similar, actually quite similar, but a smaller study that was done a number of years back. Uh, this followed patients for about three years, but it was only about 300 patients. So if you, if you go through the demographics here, these were higher risk. So these are basically men who were pre-diabetic, um, overweight on average, but not obese. Mm -hmm. um, about 15% of them were diabetic. 
half of them had elevated cholesterol, not quite half of them had elevated blood pressure. A lot of them were on statins, a lot of them on blood pressure medications. And this was looking specifically at plaque pr progression. And the metrics they used in this one were um, you know, calcium score and then uh, CIMT, which are not quite as sensitive as another study we'll talk about that used mm -hmm. CCTA. Um, but I think the interesting takeaway from this particular cohort of patients was that um, they didn't become physically more vital. They didn't have an improvement in their physical vitality. There were improvements in libido and sexual function, um, but it didn't make them superstars in the gym. It didn't really um, translate into turning into Superman, like some people perceive testosterone mm -hmm. to. So this is your you know, average out of shape person in their, you know, let's say, middle age thinking that testosterone is going to be the answer. And while there was a good safety signal here for like cardiac health, like ASCVD risk, um, it wasn't the end all be all in terms of quality of life that people have thought it out to be. Now, there is one study uh, that used CCTA uh, just below this, and that was looking at the increase in plaque volume. I think I have it. Yeah. So in another study looking at uh, a one-year trial of a testosterone gel, um, patients did have an increase in plaque volume. Uh, it was 41 millimeters, 41 cubic millimeters of plaque volume compared to the placebo. Interestingly, their calcium scores uh, did not progress quite as much as the placebo group, yeah. um, which is not necessarily a good thing. Uh, the calcified plaque that's there is stable and at a lower risk for rupture. But in both of these cases, both of these studies that looked at these cardiac outcomes, we didn't see how testosterone modified the risk factors. So blood pressure, cholesterol levels, other metrics, there's no data there in the supplementary. So, you know, patients are frequently quite well educated and they'll say, hey, you know, I saw this study on uh, testosterone increased plaque or it has cardiac mm -hmm. risk. So what do you think about that? And I really, I'm quite frankly, not sure what to make of it because we don't know if this was testosterone independently or if there was a 10 point increase in LDL, five point increase in blood pressure. Mm -hmm. If you take testosterone and your blood pressure goes up, your cholesterol goes up and you do nothing about it, you're probably going to increase your cardiac risk. Yeah. And we see this anecdotally as well. Um, many individuals that start testosterone or even that come off testosterone, some of them have a significant worsening of their blood pressure, their lipids. Sometimes this is just bad luck. And sometimes it's correlated with individuals that haven't had those lifestyle interventions and lifestyle tools as well. A decent number of individuals start testosterone, no other medications at the same time, and their lipids get significantly better. Often individuals that start with very low levels of estrogen or estradiol, and often their blood pressure is also not affected. And Yes, those individuals are usually the ones that have implemented um, significantly improved diet and exercise as well. Yeah, like you said, it can be a tool. And if you're doing a lot of the right things and using testosterone, the risk is always going to be lower. If you are using testosterone and not doing anything from a lifestyle standpoint, it definitely has the potential to make you sicker faster. Mm -hmm. Um, another point that we enjoyed looking at while doing a review for the study is on subcutaneous testosterone. Um, we like subcutaneous testosterone a lot. There's a lot of ways to do it. And uh, the pharmacokinetics 
are a bit better for subcutaneous testosterone compared to intramuscular testosterone. So um, really it's the way to go for most individuals on injectable testosterone. Um, and we were reading the package inserts and it's good that they mention blood pressure and also increases in hematocrit. Um, yeah, so it, it still does appear to be a risk with subcutaneous testosterone, even though you are having a smoothing of that um, area of exposure in, in the serum levels. And one of the reasons that subcutaneous, it would actually resemble more closely like a long-acting testosterone yep. endocannoid, especially if you're doing more frequent injections. Again, there's no, no data out there that's looking at uh, three times per week testosterone sipionate subcutaneously. Yep. It just, this is once a week. Yeah, the data does not exist. This is based on once a week dosing. And there are increases in blood pressure. There's still increases in hematocrit. Not as bad, though, yeah. compared to um, intramuscular. So it is something that should be taken into account um, and something that we frequently talk about. But um, it is good for many people. It's just a little bit frustrating because whenever you prescribe testosterone subcutaneously, the pharmacy often says, you can't prescribe testosterone subcutaneously. It's not FDA approved. There's definitely FDA approved subcutaneous testosterone, even in brand names. That's correct. And sub-Q, especially for people that are doing these lifestyle interventions, exercising, uh, if you put testosterone in your deltoid and then you go train shoulders, you're going to have a more rapid absorption of that testosterone. It's also going to clear your system much more quickly. Mm -hmm. So you greatly reduce that or almost eliminate it by using subcutaneous testosterone because the rate that it's absorbed from the subcutaneous tissue, taking the esterases longer to get in there and, and break down the oil depot and cleave the testosterone from that, is just going to happen at a fairly constant state regardless of whether you train that muscle group that day or not. This next graph we have to look at talks about different forms of administration. People often ask us, hey, uh, are you a clinic that does testosterone gel or do you do testosterone pellets or do you do testosterone capsules? Actually, we're not really asked that that often. And the answer is yes. Yes, we do. We do all of them depending on what the risk and the benefit is. And this was uh, interesting to look at because they picked a whole bunch of studies and then looked at what the relative risk for different effects was. And it was all over the place. Um, I mean, this was for cardiovascular outcomes specifically. And if you're looking at, you know, like the hazard ratios, very wide confidence intervals, mm -hmm. some of these relative risks are as high as like a 500% increased risk. Some of them look like an 80% decreased risk for testosterone. Mm -hmm. But when you break it down into the testosterone by subtype, and specifically, if you look at these last four trials with oral testosterone, yep. you see that the ones with the hazard ratios that are extraordinarily high, those are the studies from the um, 1980s, yeah. 1970s, the older ones. The newer testosterone endocannoids, it's about a one. I mean, still a very wide confidence interval, mm -hmm. so take it with a grain of salt. Yep. But the newer formulations, much more reassuring and injection actually looks slightly positive. So, I mean, if you're picking one and like we sort of hinted to, you know, DHT potentially plays a role here, yep. then it looks like injection is going to be a better way to get a therapeutic effect without pushing up the DHT. Um, because topically cause, you have more DHT. Yeah, more 5-alpha reductase. Or you could take a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, take a little dutasteride. That poison? <laughs> It's something to talk about with your doctor for sure. So there, there's more than one good way to do it. 
And for some individuals, especially those not at risk of cardiac remodeling and erythrocytosis, then maybe you don't need that at all. But uh, one thing of note, the newer oral formulations are better absorbed lymphatically, so they skip first pass. It's well known that uh, whether it's an androgen or estrogen, oral, especially estrogens that go through first pass metabolism, which is when they go through the liver, that's going to disproportionately increase risk of things like blood clots. Yeah. And taking a hepatotoxic oral testosterone is almost <laughs> not, I could, you could almost predict this without looking at the data, like from the 70s yep. and 80s, you would almost expect that to happen. And these graphs here that we posted um, are also distorted. Um, and what the author's conclusion is, what we just sort of stated is that, yeah, you've got more conversion DHT in the skin. But interestingly, um, this U-shaped curve um, came in right around a DHT level of 60 nanogram per deciliter um, as being optimal. So if your DHT level was 59 or, or 61, looks like you might need to adjust your dose. Or I've speculated this is more about um, sort of a concept that I, I think you developed. I haven't heard other people talk about net androgens, mm -hmm. but... If you assume that there is a 5 to 10% conversion rate to DHT, what most people have, if they're not using medications to alter that, then a testosterone level between 600 and 1200 would tend to correlate yep. with a DHT level of 60. So, and, and by the way, these studies are mostly done on age categories in the 60s, males in their 60s. So if you're a male in your 20s on TRT+, plus, whatever that is, and your total DHT is 60, but your total testosterone is 1500, your SHBG is 14, and your free DHT is 15, and your free testosterone is 35, then a total DHT is not optimal for preventing these adverse effects. But you're also probably just less likely to get these because you're in a different age demographic. Yeah, but again, to answer that question, people are like, well, what if I started TRT at age 31 or 27, and we really don't have... Uh, that answer, there's that data is not out there. You don't know what 30 or 40 years of exposure cumulatively looks like. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people have even asked, well, why don't they use young, healthy patients in these studies? And that's because young, healthy patients usually don't have hypogonadism, um, usually, but not 100% of the time. So um, I think that, like, if you're a younger individual, you know, maybe you put a 25% decrease on those numbers. Like, mm -hmm. you probably don't want to be running clocking a higher free hormone level because SHBG, as we know, goes up with age. Um, some people always have a very high SHBG. Some people always have a very low SHBG. So you have to think about the free hormone levels, but all the studies are based on total levels. And um, a lot of times not even treating to a number threshold seems like about half the time they're picking like, okay, we want to make sure someone's between like 300 and 1,000. Yep. So, really wide range there. Um, we're just trying to make um, the best conclusions we can from the data that's available. Yeah. And we're obviously part of the, I guess, hormone optimization community, whatever that is. And sometimes we feel like the, the bad guys because we're pointing out these risks that should be addressed. And we're pointing out that a, a total testosterone in the 500s, especially with the high free testosterone, can be optimal. And there's a lot of pushback. But compared to what I consider like academic medicine or the mainstream, that's actually quite aggressive. Even AUA, the urologist society, they're also like urologists as a whole are considered very aggressive compared to the rest of academic medicine. So um, just like realizing that your situation is unique, 
there's a lot of our audience that are bodybuilders or powerlifters and strongman competitors. And we're definitely not trying to come off as antagonistic against people that happen to be in their 20s or 30s. And they've, uh, for their profession or for whatever reason, they've utilized androgens or self-prescribed TRT in the past, and they just want to maintain on TRT the rest of their life, perhaps to maintain a physique they've built and also just because they feel better on it or they think they're not sensitive to androgens. Or for whatever reason, it is uh, perfectly reasonable to uh, do whatever you would like to do with your time and optimize your health span, how you feel best that is. But uh, we're just pointing out that regardless of what situation you're in, even if you're a 25 year old male, that's been a high level bodybuilder and now just wants to stay on TRT, even if you could probably recover normal natural testosterone, that's very reasonable. And we do help individuals do that if the benefit outweighs the risk, but it's not as simple as going to um, some social media influencers, pop up telemedicine TRT clinic, getting your level total dialed in to a total of 1200 and then just staying there. You actually need to monitor this, this is a medication and it has adverse effects like anything else, even in young ages, especially if you're gonna be on it for 70 or 80 years. If you plan for a health span of 50 years, like a lot of bodybuilders, then maybe don't plan. And then if you plan for a health span of 100 years, then you need to be planning even at a very young age. Yeah, I think those are, are great points. And like we said at the very beginning of this, this is largely a positive study for testosterone. Uh, we have mm -hmm. some safety reassurance and then some reassurance that other risks and warning labels are warranted for the testosterone. Yep. Um, there's other this other concept that comes up with um, you know first year fallacy, and um, I think there's even the same thing if you go back to the Women's Health Initiative. It's like, oh well, if you make it past the first year, then your risk is actually reduced. And I I have a hard time following this train of thought. Maybe I'm thinking too critically about this. But over time, <laughs> your age increases and risk tends to increase over long periods of time. Yeah. So let's say they, if we took this specific patient population in the mid 60s, if they stayed in on testosterone replacement, presumably for 20 more years, hopefully they have a health span at least into the mid 80s. Um, their rate of adverse effects in the last five years of their 20 years on TRT is likely going to be much higher. Yeah, and I think you just knock off people with predispositions in that first year. If you compare year one to year two, it's just mm -hmm. like if you had this same patient cohort and you send them all on a dozen international flights a year. The first year, you're gonna weed out the people that are gonna have like vascular complications that. Mm -hmm. And then it looks like, oh, well, if you don't have an event in the first year of international flights, then the second year is actually protective just to do some mental gymnastics there and make people think a little bit. Yeah, um, so I, it's like the daylight savings effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so more heart attacks during daylight savings, but then less heart attacks and some of the time surrounding it. Yeah, and then we talked about um, altitude and differences in the mechanism there. And something you alluded to was like, it would be great to see a subgroup analysis if they went back and they said, okay, um, these people that had, you know, VTE events, what predispositions did they have? You know, mm. if they just retrospectively said, hey, let's run a genetic coagulation workup on you and see if we can put our finger on why you were at an increased risk. Mm. Um, so what are some of the things that you would like to see tested or you know, if that data, those patients are still out there, I assume, because they weren't mm. uniformly fatal events. Um, yeah. What are some of those tests that you would suggest? There's a lot of tests. And just to start it off with a joke, isn't it malpractice to check a factor five laden if you've never had a blood clot? Hematologists would have you think so. Yeah, so it is perfectly fine to check a factor five laden. 
Um, talk with your doctor before you do so. But I think the wholesale or cash price for this, especially if you get it with other genetic markers, you can get your genome sequenced for a hundred, maybe $200 on a lot of labs like Vibrant. You can get it checked at something like $50 and you can get it checked with a factor two. So if you, even if you're a carrier of factor five, a heterozygote, and you have a carrier of factor two, if you have both of them, then you're of particular high risk. Um, you can also check things like prothrombin gene mutations. And we do this in patients as well. And I know a lot of other doctors do. If you have the erythrocytosis, you can check for things like JAK. I think, think it's Janus kinase mutations, JAK2, among other ones as well. And then uh, if you have autoimmunity or uh, if you're a female, history of miscarriage or uh, just depending on the situation, you can check for lupus, anticoagulant, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Um, and there's a whole host of other ones uh, that are pertinent for some people, but you don't necessarily need to check for everyone. Yeah. And one that pretty well everyone gets checked at least once a year is just a platelet count on your CBC. I know you mentioned that one as well. Um, that would be a great place to start if you don't have a lot of advanced testing yet. Is your platelet count 500? If it is, yep. then you're probably at an increased risk. If your platelet count is 170, then you're on the you know, normal end or the lower end of that risk spectrum. So that'd be a great place to start. And then occasionally we check APTT, which is activated partial thromboplastin time, PTT. And usually it's a very affordable test, even wholesale, something like $2. And if it's normal, it might not mean a whole lot, but if it's 19, then you want to dig further. Yeah. So not everyone that goes on TRT has to have all of these genetic tests before they go on TRT. But if there is a concerning personal or concerning family history there, then certainly could make sense to look for some of these, you know, factor five is the most common you know, thrombotic mutation. So checking one of those is a, a no brainer. If you have someone that you're particularly concerned about being a risk and having, you know, mm -hmm. that one out of a hundred risk of a, a PE is somebody's one out of one. Yeah. So you want to take those things into consideration. I had a patient in her thirties, not going on TRT, but about to be pregnant with an extremely strong family history of venous thromboembolism, checked, uh, checked her protein C, checked her protein S, checked her factor V, checked her um, MTHFR, or I think I actually just checked the homocysteine. If homocysteine is not over 18 or something extremely high, it's usually not associated with VTE. Um, checked a lot of things. It turned out it was factor eight, sent her to hematology and during pregnancy um, was appropriately managed, I think with uh, low molecular weight heparin. Mm -hmm. um, but for some things like uh, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, um, in those cases, often even Eliquis is not the go-to. A lot of times it's uh, old school warfarin. So the situation is different in everyone. And that's just, uh, like you said, it has to do with your pre-test probability. But I think it's a good takeaway that um, even if you aren't a candidate for all of these tests. If you just particularly want the test, then you can talk to your doctor about it. It's very reasonable to come to either one of us and say, hey, I heard about this specific test. Would this be right for me? Or even have I done this before? Yeah, and then, you know, if you're just getting this with your primary, seeing if there's a path to like either the primary that understands how to manage a, any test result that comes back there, or if there's a path for them to get you into the hands of hematology because getting the results um, and knowing what to do with it is what's really important. Yep. So hopefully, I, yeah, I think that's a, a good summary. Hopefully this has 
given both the patients and providers that have listened, not just our interpretation of the study, but a lot of takeaways that you can take to your doctor or your patients. Yeah, I think this was great. Um, feel free again to leave any questions. I suspect there will be a, another installment of you know, TRT specific Q&A because um, every time we, you know, do a post about testosterone, which is not particularly that often. Yeah. There's a lot of other facets that we're particularly interested in. We get a ton of great feedback and we appreciate that. So um, let us know what you thought in the comments. Let us know what you liked. Let us know what you didn't like. Let us know your hematocrit. And thank you for your time and may God bless you with health and happiness. Thank you.